Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. All right, Gully, welcome to Tennis.com Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Nina. Happy to join you and Irina anytime. Our favorite starting point these days is asking how your quarantine life is going. So whereabouts in the world are you and how has the isolation been treating you? Well, I'm in Chicago at our home in Chicago with my wife, Sean, and our seven and a half pound Cavapoo, uh, Russell. And uh, we live on the near north side of Chicago. We're about a 20 minute walk from Wrigley Field and on this beautiful 74 degree day here in Chicago, we probably would have been walking 20 minutes to a Cubs game and enjoying a beautiful Cubs game today. But uh, unfortunately, the whole world is shut down, so that wasn't the case. Everything is definitely shut down. I mean, you know, obviously our day-to-day lives are, but also the tennis schedule has been in absolute chaos. What's your take on how things are being handled? Our n- latest start date is July 13th, and the most notable I guess scandalous move was the French Open moving to September. What's your take on how the tours are handling all this? Yeah, it was, uh, I think it it caught me by surprise, just like I am sure it caught the rest of the tennis world. And, and certainly, you know, the alphabetical soup of the tennis world, the ATP, the WTA, the ITF, you know, the USTA, the LTA, the FTA, I mean, all those alphabets of tennis. Um, Interesting kind of date grab, you know, the two weeks after the Open from September 20 to October 4 that happened to collide with the colossal exhibition of the the Labor Cup. Um, But, yeah, it was uh, very interesting that they would kind of just – announced that they had grabbed that date without consulting anybody else about it. So we always like to ask this question as well with everything that is going on right now. We're trying to see who gets the closest. What would you say is the date that you think we're going to be back in action on the tour? I would think sometime in August. You know, I am hopeful that uh, the U.S. Open... uh, can uh, can get played as scheduled. I'm sure the USTA, all the fans, all the New Yorkers who all love tennis and certainly praying for them every night with what's going on in New York City and in the larger New York area. Um, you know, we all love the Open. You know, we love to play it. We love to watch it. We, you know, we love everything about it. Uh, so in a perfect world, you know, hopefully the U.S. Open will happen on schedule in September. And I really hope that can happen. I love that you mentioned New York because that's actually where I am right now. It's where I live. I actually wanted to um, ask you one thing. So, Gully, um, tw- 2017 was your retirement 
kind of party at USDA. I was actually there when we all gathered and celebrated your career and you're just, you're a legend um, in, in the sport. And um, I had the pleasure of working with you um, at the Pan Am Games. And it's just, it's just been so amazing to be able to talk to you today. But has your life kind of changed a lot since retiring? Because I know, I mean, you're a huge golfer. I'm sure that you're spending a lot of time on the green. And I don't know if you're still golfing right now due to the whole virus, but just what does your daily life consist of now as a retired man? Well, I, I uh, you know, first of all, yeah, thanks for that party. I have fond memories of everyone and, and uh, a nice celebration. Uh, I think if you hang around long enough, you you, know, you accumulate some friends, which uh, I was very lucky in my tennis career, both playing and coaching, to have a lot of friends at the at the end of the day, and I certainly cherish each one of you. Um, and with everyone that I've met through tennis, there's a lot of great memories and stories that we could go on forever, much more than uh, we have time for, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, I'm still involved in tennis. I'm uh, I'm a consultant for uh, Midtown Athletic Club, and Midtown is about a five-minute car ride. It's a little more than a mile from our house here in Chicago, and I'm teaching like 12 to 15 hours a week. Uh, I, I do uh, six hours in the high-performance program with our with our junior, our competitive junior players, and then I probably do eight or nine private lessons as well. So yeah, I'm teaching about 15 hours a week. Yeah, I mean, I understand that there's so many amazing things that, you know, you're probably looking forward to during this time in retired life. But is there anything that you miss from full-time coaching? Anything from being a full-time player? Well, I, you know, I miss the relationships. Uh, I miss, this probably won't sound weird to you because you've been traveling a ton, but I miss the relationships with the the players and the coaches and all the tournament people. I also miss the places, you know, like watching the Australian Open this year. You know, I loved going down to Australia. I hated the flight. I hated everything about getting there and coming back and being jet lagged for two weeks when you come back. But, you know, I... Um, I miss the people and the places, but I certainly don't miss the nonstop traveling that the lifestyle, both as a professional player and as a professional coach, you know, the, the treadmill never stops, you know, every, uh, you know, in the years that they had the full schedule, you know, not this year, but once the year starts, players and coaches and trainers and support team, you know, you get on this treadmill and you just don't get off. So when I retired in, in 2017, in June of 2017, you know, I basically elected to kind of step off the treadmill and uh, take a deep breath and kind of enjoy my life a little bit and kind of slow down. But, uh, you know, I still love everything about tennis. Uh, uh, I love, I still love playing it. I certainly love coaching it and love watching it. Love talking about it. Um, Tim and I fell in love with tennis when we were five years old and hit our first ball on the public parks in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And 
I was looking through some uh, old pictures today, and uh, there was a picture of Tim getting his Wimbledon 35 and over singles trophy in the Royal Box at Wimbledon from the Duke and Duchess of Kent. And it's such a beautiful picture and, you know, great memory of a very happy time in Tim's life where, because I won the 35 and over singles the four years prior to that. And then I lost to John Lloyd in the semis in 91. And then Tim beat him in the finals of 91 in the 35 and over men's singles. And then they canceled the event. And that, then, of course, Tim started coaching Pete Sampras. And, you know, he got Pete winning Wimbledon every year. And every year, Tim would joke around. He would say, yeah, uh, Pete and I are the holders. You know, they called the, the defending champion at Wimbledon the holder. So Tim would always say, yeah, Pete and I are the holders here. I'm holding the 35 and over trophy, and Pete's holding the men's singles trophy. You have so many memories and so many different, I guess, milestones you can cherish forever. And you mentioned your brother and you mentioned being on the pro tour. I think people might not remember that you were actually a player first. Well, kind of. You were, you were a player and then you did a bit of coaching then you turned pro and then you spent like about 30 years, I want to say, coaching again. So over 41 years in professional tennis. How did you and your brother decide to go pro? Because I believe you went to college first. So what was your guys's, I mean, you were, were, you, were you together on tour? What was that transition? Yeah, Tim and I had a unique path, certainly, that will never be followed again. Um, we were uh, teaching pros first before we ever decided to try to play professional tennis. We graduated uh, from Northern Illinois in 1973, and then I coached the Northern Illinois men's team in the spring of 74. Tim took a job in Dayton, Ohio, as a teaching pro at Kettering Tennis Center in Dayton, Ohio. And uh, Tim met a gentleman there by the name of Hank Jungle, who was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force there at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton. And Hank was the number two player in the country in the 35 and over, and he, he had played number one singles at Tulane down in New Orleans. And he was winning all the local tournaments around there until Tim shows up, this raw, raw-boned 22-year-old who just got out of college. And he was very, very good athlete, but just a little raw on the tennis side. And, and Hank took Tim under his wing and said, you know, you're such a good athlete and you're, you're, you're such a good competitor. You need to be out playing. You don't need to be teaching at this time in your life, you know. So Hank actually uh, kind of put together some sponsors for Tim. And then Tim, in 75, he quit his teaching job there in Dayton. And within one year, he went from a teaching pro in Dayton, Ohio, to top 100 in the world in one year on the ATP Tour, which is unprecedented. Uh, and then I was teaching at a club in uh, Crystal Lake, Illinois, which is a northwest suburb of Chicago. And I was winning all the local teaching pro tournaments in the Midwest. And I'm looking at my brother and my identical twin brother, um, who happens to be right-handed. I'm left-handed. And, uh, you know, I 
my wife and I had saved up a pretty good chunk of cash that we were going to buy a home and kind of become middle-class suburbia in, in uh, the Chicago area. And I'm seeing Tim top hundred in the world. And I'm like 24 years old. And I, I told Julie, I said, listen, you know, if Tim can do it, I think I can do it. So, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, left-handed. I've got a better serve than him. I'm better looking than my identical twin brother. Um, you know, I want to give this a try. So I took the, we took the 30 grand that we were going to buy a house with and I kind of sponsored myself on the tour. So in the spring of 76, I decided to venture out onto the satellite tours. And so by May of 76 and by May of 77, I was top 50 in the world. So I went from a teaching pro in Chicago area to top 50 in the world in one year, 12 months. And, you know, Tim played the tour 12 years. I played 11. You know, we we got up to three, four in the world in doubles. We made the Masters several years in doubles, which was the top eight teams. And Tim got up to 15 in the world in singles. And at my high ranking was, I think, 23. But year end was like 34. But, you know, I pretty much stayed in the top 50 my whole career just about in singles and top 10, 15 in doubles. So, you know, I won, Tim won four singles titles and I won one singles title. I won 16 ATP tour doubles titles. And I actually won the mixed doubles at the U.S. Open in uh, 1984 with Manuela Maleva. So Tim and I are probably the two only players in the history of tennis to go from teaching pros to successful touring pros. And then after we stopped playing, obviously the natural progression was to go back into coaching. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Hey guys, Irina here. Today we're speaking with the legend, Tom Gullickson. He was the man behind the scenes that led me to my very first Pan Am 2011 gold medal. Keep listening. Yeah, so did you both get into coaching at the same time or how did that also happen? Because in this, I mean, you told us your whole resume here, which was actually helping me out a lot because I didn't have to go through it, but your resume is stacked as was your brother's, of course. How did you guys get into coaching? Was it an instant switch back? I retired at the U.S. Open in 86, uh, got to the third round of the singles and uh, lost uh, to Matt Anger, 6-4 in the fifth. <laughs> I got overruled on match point to end my career. How's that one for an overrule? Yikes. Glad to see <laughs> yeah, that your I memory is still intact. I kind of off, and I'm just playing a lot of – they had a, a senior tour, the Prudential Beach Senior Tour, and Tim and I were playing a lot on that tour and, and having fun and making some good money. And that was at Wimbledon and the Open. They they did have have the 35 and over singles and doubles. So And there was some pretty good prize money in it as well. So I kind of took 87 off. And in 88, I uh, became one of the first national coaches when the USTA started a uh, – 
their very inaugural player development program in 1988. Uh, Stan Smith was the director of coaching, the very first director of coaching for the USTA. And I was one of the first four national coaches, along with uh, Benny Sims, Lynn Raleigh, and Nick Saviano. We were the four original national coaches in the first USTA player development program. And my first job really with the USTA was I was in charge of the touring pro program for men and women. And you also managed along the way to win Davis Cup title. That's something that I think stands out a lot from your, again, like I said, decorated resume and all of your experiences. Davis Cup in 1995. The men have only managed to win it once since then. American tennis has gone through quite a few changes since you were at the peak there. In 95, when you guys won it, what was this team like? Because I know there's some absolute legends on it. We got Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras, Jim Courier. What was it like? What was that uh, run? Well, yeah, that was uh, it was an honor and a privilege to to obviously be the Davis Cup captain for six years. And uh, I was lucky enough to have uh, four uh, four number ones and a number two, and a number four. And then Mal Washington was, I think he got up to eight in the world after he got to the finals of Wimbledon. But, uh, yeah, I had uh, Courier, uh, Agassi, and, and Sampras, and Chang, you know. And they were, well, the three of those guys were number one at one time. And then uh, Chang was number two in the world. He got up to two in the world, and... Todd Martin with two finals of slams and I coached Todd. So it was, uh, it was an exciting time, uh, in American tennis and, you know, certainly, you know, all those guys were competing against each other for grand slam titles. So everybody was so different, you know, Agassi, Sampras, Courier, you know, Chang, they're all grand slam champions, but they all really went about their business in different ways. And I tried to respect their individuality and try to do something not in a cookie cutter approach, but just in a more of an individualized approach to, to get them ready to play their, their best tennis on the weekend and just create a really good, supportive, positive, energetic, fun team atmosphere because the last time I checked, you know, I played on the tour for 11 years and I can never remember playing well when I was miserable. So I can definitely attest to that gully. That was one of the reasons why I actually had to step away from the sport just because I wasn't enjoying it. But hearing you talk about, you know, Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi, I mean, those two are some very high caliber legendary names. What was that team chemistry like when they were, you know, they were all competing for the same thing, but would you say that the chemistry and the bond was there? Like what were Pete and Andre like? Well, you know, Pete and Andre were obviously as probably as different as a mongoose and a cobra, you know, and they're probably never going to be the best friends, but, uh, they both had a, a very high respect, high regard for each other, the, the tennis player that they were, the athlete, the competitor. I got to say, just coaching-wise, in, in my time as Davis Cup captain, I've never enjoyed watching a one-hour hit more than we were playing Italy in Palermo on red clay the week after the Miami Open, which used to be called the Lipton. and. Uh, Agassi and Sampras were in the finals, and they were number one and two in the world, and they had both agreed to play Davis Cup on the red clay in Palermo. And 
one of them beat the other one, seven, six, and the third. I can't remember who beat who. But then they flew over London together. Then we got a private plane for him to fly from London to Palermo. And after that long, long, long journey, they got out and they wanted to hit for like an hour. So we got six new balls. And Andre and Pete were on this red clay court in Palermo. And they were just hitting balls not saying anything, just hitting balls back and forth. And you're watching, you know, Agassi was clearly one of the greatest ball strikers who's ever played the game, including today, including today's game. And Sampras obviously was an unreal ball striker as well. Huge forehand, solid backhand, good slice, you know. And and here these two, two legends were just, out and kind of, you know, getting their travel legs, out, you know, and the cobwebs out, just hitting balls on this red clay core. They didn't, you know, really talk or say anything. They were just kind of in this rhythm of just a really nice, like a one-hour hit. And it was uh, kind of beautiful to watch. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, Determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey everyone, you're listening to the Tennis.com podcast with special guest Tom Gullickson. He's regaling us with stories from his coaching days the likes of Andre Agassi, Jim Courier, Jennifer Capriotti, and more. Keep listening. I remember being a child and being obsessed with Pete and Andre. So to hear you talk about them in such a familiar, comfortable way and to have witnessed stuff like that up close, it's it's wild. But also it makes sense because you are such a decorated coach. And one of the asterisks on your resume is helping Andre Agassi to the gold medal at the 996 Olympic Games. This year is kind of hectic because the games have moved. 2021 but still you coach the gold medalist no matter what at the olympics and Agassi, yeah that was yeah that was great and uh you know brad gilbert his private coach was there uh you know i'd watched agassi you know play in plenty of the summer hardcore tournaments leading up to the olympics and he really wasn't playing very well he was uh kind of not running for balls and not competing and kind of mentally kind of checking in and out of matches. And, you know, before the Olympics uh, started, I, I had a chance to chat with him a little bit about what I'd seen kind of leading up to the Olympics. And I said, Andre, I said, uh, obviously the Olympics is really important to you. You love playing Davis Cup. You love playing for your country and your flag. And, you know, he was in Atlanta for one reason, and that was to win the gold medal. And his dad was a was a boxer uh, for Iran in the 48 and the 52 Olympics. So his father had represented his country and representing the U.S. was always really important to Andre. And he was a great Davis Cup player, no doubt. And it's funny how sometimes when you coach high level players, everybody thinks you always give them really like complicated advice. And as Irina will attest, I think the best coaching advice is always the simplest. And, you know, if you can keep things fairly simple, 
so you don't have a million thoughts going through your head when you're playing. But I told Andre three things. I said, Andre, run for every ball. Don't stop running until the ball hits the net or hits the back fence, you know, or bounces twice. Then you can stop. I said, compete for every point. You know, no checking in and out of the matches, no throwing away points because you're up a break and it's 40 love on the other guy's serve. So you had a return in the back fence. I said, compete for every point mentally, just stay in the moment and, and compete for every point. And then my third point was keep your poise and composure, no matter what. Uh, I've never seen a guy happier in my life to, uh, to wear that gold medal around his neck. And, uh, that was uh, certainly one of the highlights of my coaching career, watching Andre win that gold medal for the U.S. in the 96 Atlanta Olympics. Dolly, thank you so much for kind of taking us back to that time, because I honestly had chills the entire time listening to your story. It felt like you transported me back to 1996, even though I would have just been six years old. I honestly just really enjoyed that story. And for those of you guys that are listening, um, Gully was actually not only the gold medalist coach for Andre Agassi, he was also the gold medalist coach for me at the 2011 Pan Am Games. I actually have so many great memories of when you were on the court with me, Gully, and it was always fun with you. It was always so much fun and you know, hearing you talk about how you coach Andre, you could not have been more spot on. I love that you still remember exactly what you told him. And I remember that's exactly what you told me. I mean, you were just compete, play to win, and just have fun. And I think that's one of the reasons why we worked so well, because at the end of the day, if you keep it simple, that's usually the best medicine on the court. And I still remember just like the moment they gave me that gold medal and seeing that flag I mean it was a huge moment and I love that you were there on the court on the sideline with me to experience that because I'll never forget it no you 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 were an absolute superstar and uh, you know Irina one of the one of the many things I love about you is the fact that you love the game and you love to compete and you know you don't have the most power of any of the, the women on the tour, but you certainly have a lot of guile and you have a lot of skill and you can find different ways of kind of carving them up and making them uh, lose their rhythm and put, putting them in awkward spots in the court. So it was always great fun working with you because we had a lot of laughs, but you, you really had a lot of skill. You know, you, you're a highly skilled player and, you know, the, the gifts that, that you bring to the court are, are really inspirational for sure. Well, I appreciate those kind words. And, you know, one of the things that I told Nina leading up to this podcast, I was just like, you got to be ready for it to be like just the best stories ever. Gully's going to hit us with some stats. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite, one of my favorite things, um, one of my many favorite things uh, about you is the fact that you have the best gullyisms. We call them like the one-liners. Anytime that you're on the court, you just drop a one-liner that is just legendary. And one of the most, I think, important ones is the one you always say. It's what are the most important six inches on the court? Yeah, Nina, go ahead and take a guess what they are. Is it between your ears? 
You're right. There you oh, go. I'm so good. good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Good, so you must be really mentally tough when you play. You know what? I was mentally tough. Thank you. <laughs> it's always been in the back of my mind anytime I've been on the court. And um, that and making sure I pet the dog when I hit the forehand, keeping the keeping the racket down. To anybody listening, if you just those two things are going to make you a better tennis player. Well, as long as your do- dog isn't like a Saint Bernard, you know, you'd actually have to take your racket back <laughs> and then lift your hand up to, to pat the dog. But we'll pretend it's like a little chihuahua or something. So you really have to <laughs> drop that hand and close the face and accelerate through. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It has truly been an honor speaking with you. I know that I have had the pleasure of spending hours and many dinners and so much time on the court, which is just such a privilege to me. Um, And just thanks again for dropping some knowledge on some tennis nerds here for Nina and I. We've just, we've had so much fun. My pleasure, anytime. From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as tennis.com slash podcasts. You can also see the videos of our episodes on Tennis Channel's YouTube page and tennis.com's Facebook page. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, editor and audio designer and video editor, Christina Koseva, producers Alexa March and Sean O'Malley, and executive producers Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chu.